When Chicago as a city was incorporated in 1837, families from all over the world began arriving, looking for new opportunities and, well, a new life. As Chicago became a hub for railroads and industry, families like the Palmers, the Fields, the Armors, the McCormicks, all started building their fortunes. We see their names everywhere, on buildings, streets, and schools, and they did help shape this city. But one Curious City listener wanted to dig deeper than those big names. And for good reason. His family is older than a lot of them. Hey, Curious Chicagoans. My name is Christopher Pitson, and my family's been in Chicago for over 150 years. Which made me wonder, does anyone know what family's been living in Chicago the longest? Thanks. I'm producer Anna Mason, and when I heard Christopher's question, it made me think about the countless other families present in Chicago at the same time as those famous wealthy ones. These everyday families were living their lives and building the city in their own way. I met two such families, the Atkinsons. I am presenting my family, which is the Atkinson family, as a fourth generation Negro Chicagoan today. And the Bernsteins. On one particular line on my dad's side, uninterrupted on the southeast side since August 1888, which makes me a fifth-generation southeast sider, and my daughter, Avniel, a sixth-generation southeast sider. It's not an exaggeration to say that these families had an impact on the evolution of this city, and that the stories they've passed down from generation to generation tell us so much about our shared history. That's next. Well, my name is Michelle Madison, and I am presenting my family, which is the Atkinson family, um, as a fourth-generation Negro Chicagoan today. We were the 13th Negro family to settle in Chicago in 1847. Michelle lives in Woodlawn with her daughter. She's in her late 70s, but you'd never know it. She's a yoga instructor, teaching daily classes in her basement-turned-studio. Before we sit down to chat, Michelle takes me on a room-by-room tour of the house, and lining almost every wall are 19th-century portraits of her ancestors. Everywhere. (laughs) People say she lives in a museum. (laughs) Okay, what I have here are just people that were in the Atkinson family. Between us on the living room coffee table, Michelle's gathered a collection of papers, articles, and history books, all about her family's place in Chicago. The Atkinsons have been living in Chicago for nearly 180 years. We started at the very beginning. Michelle's family arrived in Chicago only 10 years after the city was incorporated in 1837. So great-grandfather Isaac Atkinson was born in Richmond, Virginia in 1817. He is half Scottish and half Cherokee. And he married great-grandmother Emma Jane Atkinson, who was born of free parentage in Connecticut in 1820. From the moment they arrived in Chicago together in 1847, Michelle's ancestors were making an impact. My great-grandmother Emma Jane Uh, helped Negro slaves escape by way of the Underground Railroad. Emma Jane was known as one of the Big Four, a group of abolitionist women during the 1840s and 50s who led the Underground Railroad out of Quinn Chapel, the first Black congregation in Chicago. This was at a time when Black people escaping slavery could still be arrested and sold back into servitude if found, even in Chicago. 
And so leaders like Emma Jane, who had free status, protected countless people seeking their freedom as part of her work on the Underground Railroad. As far as uh, Isaac is concerned, he owned and he operated uh, his own bus line called the Omnibus prior to the advent of streetcars downtown in Chicago. Keep in mind, this is the mid-19th century. So when Michelle says omnibus, she means a bus-length carriage pulled by horses. Isaac's omnibuses trotted up and down Chicago streets, picking up passengers and taking them along the muddy, unpaved roads as far down as Pershing Road or 39th Street. Isaac also sealed this family's place in the city by buying a very specific kind of property. They also purchased 20 plots in Graceland Cemetery uh, at 4001 North Clark, which of course is a pretty renowned cemetery. And so many Atkinson family members are buried alongside some of the best-known names in Chicago history, including the Palmers, Wackers, and Medills. Isaac and Emma Jane's children bought the Atkinson family home not far from the lake, between the modern-day near Southside and Bronzeville neighborhoods. They threw parties and did business with other Black families who had also moved to Chicago during the mid-19th century and an exclusive society started to form. One in which, as Michelle said, everyone knew everyone. And in 1904, they formalized this network and called it the Old Settlers Social Club. The Old Settlers were uh, exactly that. They were the first settlers of uh, Negroes to settle in the city of Chicago. They held high-end positions, you know, and there was a book, there was an attendance book, and they knew what their professions were. So it was kind of an exclusive club. The old settlers included black business owners, politicians, as well as the working class. But they all carried the status symbol of being in Chicago before the second great wave of immigration to U.S. cities from 1880 to 1920. To belong to the old settlers club, you had to prove that you'd been living in Chicago for at least 30 years. They would hold regular meetings and talk about politics, church activities, and family histories. One of Michelle's ancestors was a prominent member during the 1920s and 30s. My uncle, uh, Franklin Atkinson Henderson, who we call Uncle Petey. Uncle Petey worked in advertising downtown, but his real passion was the finer things in life. He was such a self-styled interior decorator. That's what he did. He made handmade oriental draperies, floor to ceiling. So he, he was a decorator. That self-styled, you know, for the family only, but that's what he did. And Uncle Petey cared a lot about the Atkinson family reputation within the old settlers community. Michelle says he made sure that she and her older sister Grace knew how to present themselves in public. I do know my Uncle Petey uh, would say that Grace was finished, quote-unquote, but I needed to go to finishing school. I wasn't quite finished. <laughs> so people grew up as young ladies. I mean, and you look at how things have become. What are young ladies? I mean, you were taught etiquette. You were taught to set a table. You were taught to, you know, the things that we just don't do formally anymore. Grace, who was born in 1924, experienced some parts of the old settlers world that had disappeared by the time Michelle came of age. My sister was actually presented to society when there was such thing as a Negro society to which to be presented. So she came out at 16, 
Back in the day, people would introduce you to other families and try to um, see who was marriageable in one family to another family, very old school. Uh, they were cotillions, they're still called that, but that's what they were, where you would dress in your finery and there would be a gentleman that escorted you. But by the time Michelle was a young lady, the cotillions weren't happening anymore. And the Old Settlers, a network that tied together the city's oldest Black families, had begun to fray. So yes, that structure did break down, and uh, it probably needed to, frankly. It was um, kind of classist. As more and more Black families moved into Chicago, the collection of old families that had been in the city since the beginning were less able to maintain these social bonds. People began to make friends, work, and associate with those outside of this carefully manicured class system. Yes, the structure broke down because all the neighborhoods broke down. But then you have to remember, you're starting to experience the Great Migration, too, from the South that lasted until 1970. The Atkinsons were the 13th Black family to settle down in Chicago, but by the end of the 1950s, there were over 800,000 Black residents in the city, many of whom experienced racism in one part or another of their daily lives, from education to banking to housing. And the Atkinsons were still in that same home. Things were going well. Babies were born and raised in that house, and the Atkinsons were happy. But in 1950, something changed. Our entire neighborhood was demolished all the way from King Drive to the lake to build Lake Meadows. The Lake Meadows development was a pilot in the National Urban Redevelopment Program, in which federal and state governments gave cities funds to level entire neighborhoods and then build new housing. This was meant to combat so-called blighted neighborhoods. Gentrification, to be exact. I do remember that there were families who decided that they refused to move, and they didn't fare as well because it was going to happen no matter what. And so, we, yes, we all had to leave within some period of time. The entire neighborhood was forced to leave, displacing a total of 3,400 families. So the Atkinsons moved five miles south, along with many of their former neighbors. I moved here when I was only six years old. To Woodlawn, to the same house that Michelle and I were sitting in for our conversation. Michelle's memories of her childhood seemed idyllic. It was amazing growing up here. But I will tell you, yes, in terms of the population here, we were a village. Absolutely, there's no doubt about it. We all knew one another, whether we were homeowners or renters. We had block clubs. And we had block parties where people would all get together and provide that for the day for us. During the 1950s and 60s, Michelle remembers Woodlawn having everything her family needed. There was Jack and Al, who did have an African-American butcher. Then across the street in the basement, black little store called Gardeners, he sold all candy. Michelle's neighborhood was completely segregated. But the shopping, the community centers, all the resources that people needed were right there. Then there was a beauty shop, a black beauty shop. You know, we went downtown and we wore our white gloves, but it wasn't uh, where we would go often. We shopped in our neighborhood. I miss that. So, yeah, it's, it's a wonderful time, but it's, it's past. By this point in our conversation, 
Michelle and I had caught up to the current day. I now knew almost all of the faces on the walls around us. The home was starting to look less like a museum and more like a collection of loved ones' memories. This is the family home, and I'm the matriarch now. But with just her and her daughter remaining in the house in Woodlawn, I asked who in the next generation would be interested in being the keeper of the family history. None of them. But that doesn't mean that the story of the Atkinsons will be forgotten. Thanks to Uncle Petey, who meticulously collected and preserved so many old family photographs, newspaper clippings of the time, and even the roster of the old Settlers Club. Michelle and her sister submitted these collections to the Chicago Public Library's Vivian Harsh Collections, where I found them. And Michelle is currently waiting to hear back from the National Museum of African American History about including her family in their records. Michelle says that this effort to leave a record of their family's legacy, it wasn't necessarily for the descendants, or even for her. I think it was more of uh, my allegiance to my Uncle Petey. He did all of this for it to fall flat was just, you know, untenable to me. So if all we have to do is pull this together, he's given us everything we need almost. And then there's the other legacy of her family, the Atkinson house. I love it here. I come down that street in my car and I smile. I'm like, oh, and if you come in the summer, there's flowers on the porch and my catalpa trees have grown. And it just makes me feel, wow, that's home. This is home to me. I talk to this house, you know. This house, as I said, has spirits in it. All the people that have lived here are here. Even more than the city of Chicago, Michelle is tied to this house and this neighborhood. I will say here, in this home, I have spent a great deal of time and energy and love welcoming people into this block and this neighborhood. And even though Michelle may not be able to pass this house on to the next generation, she has arranged to donate it to a local organization that runs Community Integrated Living Arrangements, or SILA Homes, for young women with intellectual disabilities. So even though there may not be Atkinsons living here, the importance of this house in Woodlawn will live on. And according to Michelle, the spirits within it will remain as well. But for now, Michelle is not going anywhere. I would never leave Chicago. I think this is the best city ever. Up next, we meet the Bernsteins, a Jewish family who landed on the South Side more than 150 years ago. They fought against white flight in their neighborhood and are still there today. Just a mere 10 miles south and 41 years after the Atkinsons settled in Chicago, the Bernsteins arrived. My name is Aryeh Bernstein. I'm 47 years old. I was born in 1975. Rabbi Aryeh Bernstein and his parents, Chuck and Roberta, sat around the dinner table with me in Aryeh's childhood home in Hyde Park, a cozy condo off of Hyde Park Boulevard, where his parents still reside today. And on one particular line on my dad's side, uninterrupted on the southeast side since August 1888, which makes me a fifth-generation southeast sider, and my daughter, Avniel, a sixth-generation southeast sider. And I think we're the only family about whom that's true. There are pictures of six generations of Bernsteins all around us, including Aryeh as a child and a teen with his siblings, 
on bookshelves and amongst various pieces of Jewish art and ritual objects. A lot of the stuff in the um, breakfront, especially the silver, some of the dishes, were my grandmother's, my mother's mother. So, you know, they're not necessarily from the old country, but uh, hand-me-downs. Arye sits in front of me with his bright orange framed glasses over intense eyes. His hair in long, succinct curls with his kippah, a cloth head covering worn by some Jews, sitting on top of his head. Arye's ancestors came here for the same reasons as many other Eastern European Jews at the time. There was very little economic opportunity and increasing anti-Semitism where they were living. So Nathan Bernstein and his wife, Nettie Finkelstein Bernstein, along with so many others, left everything behind to seek out a better life in Chicago. He had a friend who had settled in South Chicago, so that's why he came here. Nathan went on to sell dry goods, like many other Jewish immigrants at the time. He was also a religious man. And in 1902, along with his newfound friends and neighbors, he created the first Jewish synagogue in the area, sometimes called a shul in Yiddish. The shul was formed at 89th and Houston called Bikr Cholom, and Nathan Bernstein ended up being, he was an early active stalwart of this congregation, and our family retained a membership there until it finally closed um, in the late 1980s. It was the first of many shuls that cropped up on the southeast side, 14 by the 1950s, and all within a four-square-mile area. The Jewish population there was surging. Nathan and Nettie's children and grandchildren continued to live in and around the South Chicago and South Shore neighborhoods. One of those grandchildren is Arye's father, Chuck. Well, I originally was born in South Shore South and Shore. lived at 7624 Phillips Avenue. Chuck's future wife, Roberta, was born a few neighborhoods south. Jeffrey Manor was restricted. You had to be a veteran to buy a house there. So they did. So that's where I grew up. These neighborhoods from 75th down to 100th Street and from Stony Island to the lake were popular landing spots for Jews and a number of other ethnic groups. In front of you was... Um, a girl from whose parents were Polish, and next to you someone was Serbian, and behind you was someone who was from Croatian, and they all went to these different churches, and then there was a few Jews over here, and a couple of Mexicans over there, and some other, all kinds of people, all kinds, mixed together, and thriving off of that cultural interchange. This same cultural diversity that Roberta loved was one of the things that her father, Sam Lesner, most enjoyed about raising his family on the southeast side in the 1940s and 50s. He was, I don't know where it comes from, but he was a progressive, a liberal, and so was my mother. That's just who they were, how they thought. Sam was a movie critic, sort of by accident. He had a filing job in a morgue when someone asked if he could cover the Yiddish theater for the Daily News. Sam knew all about Yiddish theater because he had to take his grandmother to a show every week as a child. Sam started writing Yiddish theater reviews, and from there, his critic career took off. He ended up covering the arts of all kinds, in Chicago, across the country, and even all over the world. I think the entertainment industry 
has long been a place that people who were refugees from respectable society, where they were rejected, were able to find a way. Roberta opened up a big album, stuffed full of newspaper clippings and photos of her father, alongside some of the biggest names in entertainment at the time. Sidney Poitier, Julie Andrews, Alfred Hitchcock. Sam was also a jazz singer himself and performed from time to time at Mr. Kelly's on the near north side, one of Chicago's big name nightclubs of the 50s and 60s. As a result of that, his world was much more integrated than the worlds of almost anybody else in 1950s America. Sam would have parties at his home with all of his friends from the arts. That included black people, gay people, all were welcome. During the 1950s, the very same great migration that changed Michelle's world of the old settlers was making its impact on the Bernsteins as well. And real estate developers were ready to profit off of this demographic change. They would use scare tactics to pressure white families, including white Jewish families on the southeast side, to sell their homes, telling them that all of the black families moving in would change the neighborhood for the worse. My grandfather, Sam Lesnar, telling us the stories about in the late 60s, night after night, getting these phone calls, two in the morning, three in the morning, from uh, blockbuster real estate predators trying to pressure him to sell. You know, another one moved on to the block, Lester. You better sell now. I'll give you cash for your house now. If you don't go now, you're going to lose everything. The developers would then buy these homes and rent them to black families without investing in the upkeep of the houses. And due to a combination of banks denying mortgages and a GI bill that excluded black veterans from low-cost mortgages and low-interest loans, most of those black families were unable to buy those houses. And this was going on all across the Bernstein's neighborhood. I mean, it's hard to believe this, but literally had the experience of being at a community meeting in the evening where everybody's talking about, hey, we are all progressive people. We are all pro-integration. We think integration is a good thing. The panic is being imposed from the outside. We have a lovely community. Our new neighbors are lovely people. There's no reason to leave. And somebody who would give a passion speech like that in the evening, the next morning their neighbors would find that they had left. People literally moved, packed up their belongings, and moved in the middle of the night. It didn't make any sense to Sam or his wife Esther. And he wasn't going to stand for it or hide his disdain from his children. He ranted and raved about it's so terrible and why are they going and where are they going and what for? And let them come here and live and together with us. And he just went on and on and on. And then when the real estaters uh, started calling, I heard those conversations from his side. I heard him swear into the phone and say, uh, and use language that he almost never used otherwise. And then, bang, he always, he always slammed the phone down. Go to hell, bang. They didn't think that there was anything strange about integration. Mm -hmm. There's nothing scary about it. They thought that white flight was way scarier and way weirder than integration. And so Aryeh's grandfather and his family stayed. And stayed. Eventually, Roberta and Chuck moved a few miles north into Hyde Park, just a block from the lake, into the very apartment we were in that day. 
Hyde Park was alive with the Jewish community. And yet, as Aryeh grew older, he began to realize that the decision to stay on the South Side meant more than he ever could have known as a child. We'd be out at some restaurant on the North Side or something, and my parents run into somebody they used to know. And it's the reaction was always the same. Like, you still live on the South Side? <laughs> and sometimes they'd add, like, but nobody lives there anymore. Aryeh didn't understand why he had to prove to old neighbors that he wasn't missing out on anything. What I grew up having to process was, it was obviously wrong and ridiculous. Like, there were three synagogues. There was, like, a Jewish day school here. There's, a hill. There's like, a lot of Jewish infrastructure and Jewish people around. Even as Aryeh got older, became a rabbi, and had kids of his own, his attachment to the southeast side of Chicago grew. You asked whether I could live anywhere else in Chicago that's not on the south side. Uh, that would be difficult. <laughs> Aryeh also honors his grandfather's memory by continuing a practice of progressive action. He is a community organizer in Hyde Park and is the director of the Avodah Justice Fellowship in Chicago, working on labor, housing, and policing issues. And for Aryeh, South Chicago, a neighborhood in which he himself has never lived, still calls to him. And so there's this strange way in which even just the names of these streets that only exist on the far east side from South Shore down, Chappelle and Oglesby and Bennett, there's a kind of emotional resonance to just the, the names of those streets. And anytime I'm running an errand in South Shore in that area, there's a certain kind of tingling. It's a weird feeling of like the inaccessibility of the old country. South Side's my ancestral homeland. That's why I'm here. By the end of my afternoon with Aryeh, Chuck, and Roberta, old high school yearbooks, history accounts, and family documents lay scattered open before us. I asked Aryeh's father if he could imagine living anywhere else. You, you kind of got me flat-footed here. I mean, it's just my home, and I've been here for a long time. Did you ever have thoughts about moving? No, no, about. no, I never wanted to. I mean, this is where I wanted to be, always. This is home. It's the Altaheim. <laughs> Not going anywhere. This is my home. In Yiddish, Altaheim simply means homeland. I ended up in the same place with the Bernsteins as I did with Michelle. Both of these families couldn't imagine living anywhere except Chicago. But their roots to their neighborhoods ran even deeper than their allegiance to the city as a whole. They are citizens of Woodlawn, Hyde Park, and South Shore. Talking to the Atkinsons and the Bernsteins made me wonder about other Chicago families and how their stories helped shape the city we live in today. What could be tucked away in other family histories? Stored away in attics? stuffed into albums, or framed on living room walls. Curious City is supported by the Conant Family Foundation and is produced by Jason Mark and Joe Dassault. Adriana Cardona-McGeegud is Curious City's reporter. Maggie Civit is the digital and engagement producer. J.P. Swenson is our Luminary Fellow, and Johanna Zorn is our editor. I'm Anna Mason. Thanks for listening.